Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know, not to know what you believe or why you believe it. What we want you to know is that you are with others who are in a similar place as you on a frontier trying to figure out what uh, your faith and what your life means to you. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to continue one of our projects where we talk to people about their experiences with God and how those shaped their life and how they've changed over the course of their life. And today we're going to talk to Matt, and I want to let Matt introduce himself to you before we jump into that story. So Matt, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Matt Waite. I am a pastor in uh, Los Angeles. I'm actually part of the same per- church body that Nate is a pastor in. You and I have been through a lot of the same experiences, being at the same seminary, same church body. And I imagine one of the main things that people ask you uh, when they start to get to know you a little bit more is, why did you become a pastor? Uh, it's a question that's asked of me quite a bit, and I think it'd be a good place to start. Why did you become a pastor? Why did I become a pastor? And and actually, one of the, the fun things about your introduction to the podcast and to this set of episodes is it's our, like, our interaction with God. Um, mine is going to have very little to do with my interaction with God and much more to do with my interaction with his people, um, mm-hmm. because that that becomes the crux of uh, all of like many of the blessings, but also many of the hardships I experience. Uh, so whenever I'm asked, how did I become a, a pastor? It's 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 a really weird story. First of all, because I am a transplant. I'm one of the few uh, people that I know, especially pastors that I know that that wasn't born into and raised in this church body, uh, but rather I was loved and. So a friend of mine actually invited me to go to camp in Southern Indiana. Uh, and I said, no. And then he promised that there are cute girls there. And so I said, <laughs> yes, of course I'll go. Uh, and years later, I met my wife on staff at that camp, but it took, it was a long game. So my friend was so he right. He wasn't lying to you. He, yeah. he wasn't, it was, it was good. Uh, but anyways, the, the, the first, I go to the week at camp, I have a really good experience. Uh, and actually, like read through the Gospel of Matthew, which uh, footnote terrible first read, uh, whatever. <laughs> um, so I read through the Gospel of Matthew and started getting really intrigued in this this whole faith thing. Uh, and I'm 14 ish at the time. And then on the way home, my friend's dad is very intentional talking to me and drawing out how was your experience, what what were the things you liked, didn't like, blah blah blah. And finally, I like built up the courage. Uh, because I was ignorant at the time, built up the courage of like, will you take me to church with you? And uh, like, I thought I was overstepping my bounds here. Now I know, like, he was just praying for me to say that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> he was trawling for yeah. you, you know. <laughs> Which I'm glad, I'm really glad he did that. Um, and so he he started taking me to church with him, and he dropped me off at home. Uh, and then a month or two later, he they have the whole family gets transferred uh, out of the area. Uh, so my, yeah. my mom would drop me off at church with my dad. And then someone from the church would drop me back off at home. Uh, I'm, I'm like one of the few kids who, when I got a driver's license, I was at church more often. Um, huh. so anyways, uh, about a year after that, that first camp, uh, it's, I'm 15 at the time. And I learned that my friend actually died. That, that friend who brought me to the church camp and who got me connected to the church, 
Um, and like my, my family, just a side note, my family brought us, me and my sister to church when we were really, really young and we didn't have any real interaction with the church uh, after that. So this is, this is kind of how I got active in my faith and um, was through entirely through this friend of mine. And so I got pegged to do the eulogy uh, at his funeral, which was a really great- You were how old? Uh, 15. Um, wow. and, and so like the youth group talked to me and uh, we, we kind of like co-wrote something together. And I was, I was a really close friend of his that overlapped both his church community and uh, his friends at school. And so I had really good overlap between the two, which is why I got pegged for it. And so I gave the eulogy and the church was packed and the narthex was packed and the gym was packed with like closed circuit TVs because he, he was, I mean, a young kid had died and it was a young kid who had a big impact on the community. And that like by and large was, was very well loved. Um, and so uh, you can take out by and large there who was very well loved. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he seeing that and seeing that unfolding in the church, I realized I wanted to go into youth ministry. And so I really wanted to be um, a director of Christian education in our church body, which I just thought was a youth pastor. Uh, and now I, I know better than that now, but, uh, <laughs> but I really wanted to go into DCE and specifically into youth ministry. Uh, and then as I got older and got more involved in it, the church was like, Oh, you're really good at speaking. You should be a pastor. Uh, turns out not a good qualification for a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> but because of their prodding, uh, I did look into pastoral ministry and, uh, and that's kind of big picture how I got into it. Um, what I don't say at most interviews though, is the troubles that I had along the way. I, it, it is near miracle level that I am still a part of the church. I had some awful experiences along the way. My DCE and that congregation that welcomed me in were amazing. Uh, and he's actually, he's now a full-blown pastor and I, I still love him to death. I still talk to him and I'm so grateful for the work that he did and the welcome that that congregation did. The, the, way, the way to welcome a, a goofy looking 15 year old with like the 40 inch bell bottoms. Uh, sadly, I can't find a picture of that. Uh, it would be great. Aww. And like 30 inches of hair and stuff. Like it, it was amazing that they welcomed me in because I really didn't look like any of them. Um, and I didn't have Sunday best. I, I, I wore like the weird clothing and they welcomed me in. And so I loved the congregation dearly. Uh, but one of the pastors there did everything he could to alienate me. Um, he never tried to or anything like that. Uh, but he led, I remember he led a confirmation class because the DCE was out of town or on vacation. And he's just talked about family structure the whole time. And the whole narrative was entirely about nuclear family units. And that was all he had in his mind. It's a nuclear family that brought their kids to Sunday school every Sunday. And here I am sitting here with adoptive parents for my confirmation process, uh, because my parents obviously weren't going to be a part of confirmation. Hmm. And my parents are divorced. And so like everything he's saying is alienating to me. Hmm. And eventually the guy, uh, he even gets removed from that call uh, for some indiscretions that he had committed, which like, uh, great. Why are you still here, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I had really difficult experiences in seminary with uh, some some congregations that I, I got to participate in, uh, and had some really really hard times throughout that, along with just the difficulties that come from being a part of 
from going to grad school, right? Like mm-hmm. how much stress that that can be on on top of everything and how outlandishly difficult it is to make decisions when you're in college for the rest of your life, um, especially right. expensive ones that pigeonhole you mm-hmm. into a degree that is the least flexible thing in the world. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, like I would have trouble getting a job at Home Depot now. Uh, so um, it, it's along the way though, we grew up, uh, at least in, this is my experience. I don't know if Ryan and Nate, you had similar stuff, uh, but very culturally at the time, there was so much attention on the youth and right, like we had this purity culture and we have these clear cut guidelines on what God is up to in the world. Mm-hmm. And the, the bigger narrative that matters to me is the idea that everything happens for a reason. And that phrase was so baked into popular theology of the time. And the amount of times Romans 8, um, is 8.28, I'm blanking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Romans 8.28, uh, I can pull it up. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Like we, mm-hmm. used, we use these expressions so frequently that suddenly when I'm in college, I started doubting about ministry. Um, I told you I had a lot of difficult experiences and events that happened that I just, I doubted whether or not I should be in the ministry, whether I was good enough for ministry or, or smart enough or compassionate enough, whatever it is. I also have like a general anxiety issue, which never helps. Um, and so I'm asking, and I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> fun, right? I'm not anxious enough today. Mm, What's going it's, on? It's great. It's great. <laughs> um, and so I start having this debate about whether or not I should. And with that debate comes this immense, immense sense of guilt. And I couldn't unpack why I felt so guilty and why I struggled with it so much. And it was driving me nuts. And throughout undergrad, like I, I had, that's when my, my anxiety really started to show up and I was having bouts with depression. Um, and then I go to seminary and that was just like soul crushing because I have my field work, field work that is just oppressive and very difficult. Um, and like that pastor was saying things openly against other churches and the LCMS in the area. And like, is this what it is to be in ministry? I don't want to do this. This isn't the type of thing that shows the impact a young person's death has on a community, right? Like this isn't the moment that, that I was hoping for when I signed on for professional ministry. And slowly I started to unpack that in my head, I had taken on this belief that my friend's death um, was so that I would go into ministry, right? All things happen for a reason. God works for the good of those who love him. So my friend dying was so that I would go into ministry and and that God would use that as the impetus to push me into ministry. And that was my narrative for a long time. Uh, That was the way I understood it. And I would say that to people, I would say that pastors, uh, I remember saying something like that to the pastors that I had to interview so that I could get into seminary at all because uh, we had this mm. weird interview process. And like, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's that's really good. That's really touching. And, and, and no one like ever stopped me and said, that's dangerous. That's a really weird way of framing things is that God killed mm-hmm. someone so that you would go into ministry. Um, and so that... I started to connect the dots that I had been using this weird way. We talk about God's will. And I was carrying a lot of guilt because if I can't do ministry well enough, or if I fail or if I struggle or if I change jobs, God killed my friend for no reason. 
So could you could you say a little bit more about the link in your mind between uh, your friend's death? I mean, whether God caused it or not, um, how did that link up with you feeling like you were called to ministry? So like, was it, um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so like I, when he died and I saw that impact and especially the amount of younger people he had touched, uh, for me, that was a like, Hey, look at what one person can do in a community and how many people he can touch. Mm-hmm. And then I directly connected that to the DCE and I, and I think rightly too. Um, and like, this, this person has had a really big impact on my friend's life. My DCE's had a really big impact on my friend's life. And that kind of work and that kind of ministry is important. And if this is the kind of thing that, that's up there. And I'm standing out here. I have this connection. I feel this sense of calling to do the same thing, to, to raise up young people and encourage them. Um, I, I just tied that together, that... Um, mm-hmm. I was placed here giving a eulogy for my friend's death for a reason. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Like that makes every, sense. Every event is lined up this right, right? Like the year before I go to camp and then a year after he dies and then I give the eulogy and I get really enmeshed in this congregation that I had no, yeah. no connection to. Everything was perfect, right? Like it was a perfect lineup to get me into the ministry. Um, Almost like God was playing chess. Exactly. Lining up the pieces, yeah. And it really fit broadly into the narrative that um, that we were all being fed. Uh, and again, it, it's a narrative that we all bought into. And like, I, I think my DCE and my youth leaders probably said similar things. Um, and I love them dearly. I, I mean, no ill to them. This is a cultural movement, in my opinion, that we all kind of fell into on accident. Um, was it, did you hear that kind of talk from, from the people that knew your friend? Cause I, I hear this sometimes as a pastor, you hear this just generally when somebody dies, like, oh, well it was because, you know, God wanted to relieve their suffering or this, that. Or the God other. needed another angel. Well, yeah. You get the horrible stuff. Too. <laughs> um, Especially when they're kids, that drives me yeah. so crazy. Um, People can't deal with it. But that's such a strong narrative, right? Because we have to justify a young person's death, um, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. don't connect how awful that is. Uh, right. Like, right, like God needed another angel, or God needed to do this so that you could go into ministry. And it's like, then God's a dick. If, <laughs> if right. God needs my friend right now, he's a real jerk. Because I actually do, and I'm not God. Yeah. Because um, if God needs to kill a 15-year-old, that's the only way God could get you into the ministry? Exactly. Like, yeah. Which which is yeah. also like, not only, and please don't divorce how narcissistic that was for me to hold on to that. Um, and I own up to that. Like, that was a really narcissistic thing to think like, oh, God did this for me. Um, like, so not only guilty, yeah, well, but very, very selfish. Well, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to question your own telling of that but i also wonder like you know with grief and with Mm -hmm. loss um maybe what you're experiencing is when you're that age is the impact of the culture that you're talking about on you and so it might just be another conclusion you have to draw like oh i am this special because god killed this wonderful person for me um Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I only hear it as narcissistic, more as um, one of those tragic consequences of that culture. 
Very kind of you. And as a way that that you were able to process the grief you had, I imagine. Like, I'm not trying to tell you you're wrong. There probably was an element of narcissism in there. But um, it's also, I mean, you were 15 trying to deal mm-hmm. with a friend's death. And then your brain links the two and says, and, you know, God did it because of you. So, I mean, I think that was a way that you were probably trying to wrestle with the, the like, process your own emotions and all of that, too. Yeah. And that's fair. Um, I also am never going to say that a 15-year-old white male doesn't have narcissism running through his veins. So. <laughs> well, I mean, you're... you're <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Different, uh, different podcast. <laughs> but I am curious. Like, so are you expressing this as you're talking about... Because I know how teenagers are. They talk about what they want to do and all that. And there's there's conversation. Are you expressing this idea of God's will for you with others? And how are they responding to that? Yeah. Um, you, you mean like when I was that age or like, yeah, yeah. Up until, yeah. When you, from the time your friend died up until college and you start going into it. Yeah. I mean, that that's how I started to process and talk about it. And the only, I, again, like, I think the only pushback I got was God's will isn't for you to be working with youth. It's to be a full-blown pastor. Oh, okay. Um, right. Like that, that was the real ah, pushback yes. is you speak well. Um, and I did, like I was in theater, I should have been able to give speeches in front of my congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. gosh, just the arrogance of other people telling you what your call is though. I mean, I experienced similar things growing up, so I understand, but it's just like, man, who are you? <laughs> yeah. And like, we do need good, we need good people in ministry. It's just by and large, you should probably have a deep relationship with someone before you push them into it. (laughs) Okay. So if we were to fast forward in the story a bit to when you're in college, you mentioned some doubts and we don't need to go into the doubts necessarily, but what kind of brought that up? Like what were you struggling with at that time when it came to the will of God for your life? Yeah. um, I just, I started to, I'm trying to remember. I, I think I just started to experience more psychological trauma. Um, that's when I started, like college is when I actually started processing the impact of my parents' divorce, uh, which which is partly because like I had a, we had a psychology class for uh, adolescents and we were talking about most, the, the majority of divorces happen when kids get through middle school. And then like the second wave is when kids get to college and my parents got divorced right around mm-hmm. middle school. It's like, oh, it is my mm-hmm. fault. Um, it's not, it's not mom and dad. I know it's not, um, <laughs> but like starting to actually see how, how that impacts you and even trying to play out how your own, uh, psychology is, is predicated on your parents and unpack. I have, I have a minor or sorry, I have a major in psychology. Um, and so I got to spend a lot of time thinking about how I think. And I started to realize that I, I had some anxiety and depression that had been there since easily before high school uh, and had been haunting me for far longer than I ever admitted. Um, And so I started to unpack that. And with that comes this incredible sense of guilt, especially if you're still in the mindset as I was at the time, that it's the will of God. And I started to have Mm -hmm. professors who were actually creating a rich theological narrative, um, which is one of the like I started unpacking that maybe this wasn't healthy in college, but I still didn't fully get there until seminary. Uh, Cause it takes a long time to unlearn something that's ingrained mm-hmm. in you. Um, and so I, 
I was starting to have these psychological issues, but you're not allowed to have these kind of issues. You're not allowed to have this kind of pushback. And now you feel guilty for asking the question about feeling guilty because it's mm -hmm. all in one gut. And it's this really nasty catch 22 that you can't get out of. Um, and, and I can't even remember if there were other specifics. Um, like I don't, I don't think there was any big event. It was just a slow burn from yeah. everything from my adolescence. God yeah, that great. makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't often <laughs> materialize as a big event. It's usually just life goes on. You learn thing here and there and start to process how you're approaching life and faith. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, maybe the things I took for granted are damaging or at least neutral and not really something I want to hold on to anymore. Yeah. Were you doing all of this processing internally or, you know, were you, uh, was there anyone you were telling about these kind of feelings or? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, we could cold call my ex-girlfriend and see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Live on the air. Yeah. Hey, remember me? Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, knowing me, probably mostly internally, um, at, at the time at least, I don't think I... I started to have some really good conversations with one of my professors and um, some like actual pastoral conversations, um, which at, at this time I hadn't really had a pastor, by the way. Like my first pastor was a professor. That's not great. Um, and I still dearly love him. He is primarily a professor for me, uh, but he also officiated my wedding and is just a deeply treasured person. Um, so I, I can't can't say enough good things about Dirk Reek. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't really have anyone I trusted outside of a couple professors. And I also try to respect professional boundaries with them. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I mostly on my own mostly through yeah. classes and probably through the questions I was asking in classes. Um, mm -hmm. And then you say that when you got to seminary, you kind of resolved some of that. Is that right? It started to resolve throughout seminary. I tried to drop out a couple times and I would like, I called my now wife um, fiance, probably. I don't remember time. Time is missing. Um, <laughs> so I called my, <laughs> my now wife. I was like, I'm going to quit. Um, I remember going through, um, going through like the introductory week. I was like, I'm just leave. I'm unpacked everything. I can just put it in the truck and leave. Uh, she's like, why do you want to leave? It's like, I'm not good enough. Like, That's not a legitimate reason to leave. Like she never said I couldn't leave. She just had to let, like I had to have a valid reason to leave yeah. for her, <laughs> which I really, really appreciate. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I, I desperately wanted to, to quit. Um, and friends and my, my now wife didn't let me, uh, or at least try to make sure that I had a legitimate reason to quit. Um, and again, I was feeling immense guilt and the guilt's part, partly what kept me there. And then after a year or two, and thanks to like Lutheran mind actually was a very helpful in reading. I'm probably the only person who had a positive spiritual experience from this. <laughs> um, but reading, um, help me out, mate. Um, oh gosh. Ta, the geez, 
Theology of the Cross comes from Heidelberg Disputation. Come on, you idiot. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> that thing I read all the time. <laughs> hey, it's a helpful document. Personally, I expected better of both of you. <laughs> I did. I was probably the only person who had a positive spiritual experience with the Heidelberg Disputation, which is basically Luther combating scholasticism and pushing on the idea that we shouldn't say too much about God, right? Like there's the hidden God and the revealed God. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's where we get some of this language of theology of the cross, which becomes a weapon in the hands of untrained seminarians uh, and some (laughs) many pastors where suddenly we're just like bludgeoning Uh everything with theology of the cross. And we haven't really tried to apply it when like very, very oversimplistically, it's like, we uh, just say too much about God. We'd like to say too much about God. And we oftentimes make bad things, good things. And that was a really big moment for me because the death of my friend had to be a good thing. Everything has to be Uh a good thing because of what God is up to, which is horrific. It's a horrific Mm -hmm. thing when we start to, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for the good of those who love him. And and specifically, we use that sentence as a present tense, everything's good for us now. Right. Mm -hmm. And we remove that verse from its context of everything happens in a way that God's plan will ultimately work out, that the promises of God Mm -hmm. will come to fruition after the birth pains, which is clearly there. Somehow. Exactly. Somehow. Um, And so instead of like, right. No one ever read the scriptures to me in a way that I could see that God has this incredible, intricate, beautiful plan, and it's never working the way he wants it to. It's always getting subverted by the Israelites and by the people of God who are turning against him every opportunity they have. And in spite of that, God's plan of salvation is still in play. In spite of humanity and in spite of sin, God is up to his plan of salvation and nothing we're going to do is going to shut that down but the things we're doing are bad um Mm. and that was a huge moment for me because then my friend's death it didn't become i was reading into it what god's meaning was in my friend's death and and even that god is the one who did it it is Mm. saying too much in my opinion um my friend died because of sin and brokenness in the world um, and please understand when I say sin and brokenness, I mean it very, very broadly, not that my sin did, my friend did something sinful that right. caused this. Um, sin and brokenness is in the world. That's why he died. And it was bad. His death is just a bad, tragic, horrible thing. Mm-hmm. In spite of that, good things can happen. In spite right. of my friend dying, I became a pastor. And I am thrilled now, I am thrilled to be a pastor. And I genuinely love the work that I get to do. And and, um, I think I'm pretty good at the whole like empathy and caring for people thing. I also can speak well. Um, But I think I'm good at the the empathy thing. And that I'm cognizant of how we talk about God and how that actually Mm -hmm. plays out. And I'm sensitive to that and the way other people talk about it. I've had parishioners tell me their daughter died in a car accident so that like they could witness to a paramedic or a hospital nurse. And like, obviously I'm not going to like 
correct them on that in that moment. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a slow walk to try and help them see like, you should be angry that your daughter's dead. You should be sad. You should be whatever you want to be. You get to be that. And you even get to be that with God because it's not in line with his promise, right? Like his promise mm -hmm. is that he's going to prosper us and bless us as the people of God. And that he wants good things for his creation. Um, and I love that, like no one ever read Matthew's, Matthew's discussion of the Lord's prayer to me, um, right? Like we talk about the will of God and he's done these awful things to us so that we'll, move our butts and um stop sinning or yeah whatever. And, and then you read matthew and it's like i mean if a kid asks for bread i'm not going to give him a scorpion i'm not like a bad father mm. here like oh mm -hmm. then why do we talk about god like he's an awful father <laughs> an abusive father yeah. <laughs> i think so what do you think about um I'm not trying to make this too abstract but it seems like and in my experience too, but uh, just in general, we have a hard time when things, when we can't give something meaning, like we are maybe as humans, but certainly as conservative Christians, uh, we just can't accept that some things or maybe, you know, that there may not be meaning in everything. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that, but it's just, I know I encounter that a lot of people have to have meaning, especially for traumatic things. And I think it can really be a struggle because sometimes I don't know if there is one, we may not know it. And I mean, sometimes there can be, I'm not making a blanket statement. I just, I don't know. I think we struggle with that. Sometimes it wasn't really a question, but. <laughs> but that's, that's the whole, and going back to the Heidelberg disputation here in the hidden god like there might be a meaning there may be a greater underworking we just can't say what it is and we shouldn't try to mm. but i do think we have to have we have to have meaning right like things have to happen for a reason especially if we've been enculturated to think about it that way um and like pastorally and and i say this pastorally like even if you're not a pastor, you should try and think pastorally toward your friends and family. Um, <laughs> pastorally, you, you just don't blat like blatantly correct people because they've said something weird. Mm. Um, you have to go about that. Especially in trauma. Especially in trauma. Um, yeah. Ideally, these are things that we unpack before trauma happens so that you have the tools and the language mm. set. Um, but right, like we desperately want, desperately want meaning, COVID is a great example of this um everyone wants meaning i i remember when there was a hurricane that hit um hit louisiana uh like somebody drew a map like outlined the hurricane and outlined a fetus and it's like it's because they're committing abortions and it's oh i thought it was my fault yeah so it was ryan's fault yeah um yeah. <laughs> you know it's always the gays <laughs> fault for hurricanes <laughs> not that one the other one. Oh, not that one. We were on holidays. Yes. <laughs> uh, he wanted us in a different message that time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you caused you caused the Houston one somehow. Right, um, right. Yeah. No, Katrina. Katrina. That's the gay. Katrina. Ball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I us and the abortionists, as I recall. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's a great example, right? Like we have to have a codified meaning that we can learn a, a lesson or a value judgment as a result of it. And like, I, I do think through scripture, we have an ability to talk about and evaluate and comment on things. It's just never clear cut. It's not never clear cut. Mm -hmm. It's just not clear cut in this way. 
Um, Rarely, I think. Yeah. I just, I don't, never is a very absolute no, word. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and like amazing things happen in the wake of Katrina or the hurricanes, um, but like God didn't cause a hurricane so that we would be nice to our neighbors for once. Um, ideally, he wants us to do that all the time. I think that's, that's my understanding of scripture. Uh, I don't know. I think he said, love your neighbor when you really have to, and I make natural disasters happen first. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So was it Heidelberg yeah. that, that moved you? You marked it as a very important moment. Um, like in uh, hindsight, do you think that that's what helped uh, dislodge your idea of the will of God in that way? Yeah. I mean, in so far as our memory of narratives always globs on to particular events and gives more meaning than we want to, that we should give them credit for. Sure. Um, I'm fine saying Heidelberg was a big one, but it, it's probably just a long journey of getting a better understanding of theology and, and God and like actually reading scripture in like a deeper way with people who also think about it deeply was Im immensely helpful. Mm -hmm. Instead of going off of books where, you know, we're talking about why men have to chase women because they're princesses and we're dirty because we're made from dirt. And so we belong in the woods. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gosh, Epic is such a bad book. Um, so <laughs> some of us just aren't very wild at heart. That's know? the other one. Yeah. So all, all of those <laughs> books, right? Like are baked into our ethos when we were kids. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I think Heidelberg helped, but more broadly it was the people who were were immensely helpful in me growing a deeper and a greater appreciation for god and for scripture uh, and and ultimately for the church um I, I don't think i ever would have told my narrative the way i do now right like my first correction my story is not a story about my interaction with god it's a story about my interaction with the church um it's amazing that i'm here but the reason i'm here in the church still is because I had amazing churches. I had churches that loved me just constantly and at every single turn, um, even if they weren't always doing the best for me uh, and maybe had some weird idiosyncrasies they baked in, but they were there and they never abandoned mm -hmm. me. But like that that's the amazing thing to me is we can't always know what God's up to, but, but we can see what people are up to um, and how God is at work through people loving and showing compassion um and that's that's been a huge takeaway in the background of all of this is to care for people and um try and help them have a space to make meaning and to sort out things and not let them hamstring themselves on this prick god that is out there killing 15 year olds right um, giving babies bone cancer giving babies bone yeah. cancer right it's yeah, yeah. I, so in regards to that, like, I'm not saying like, what exactly do you say? Because every, everything is different. Every person is different. But now that your narrative has really kind of reframed itself from where it started in terms of your own call to ministry and, and your views of like how God's will works and doesn't work, that kind of thing. Like, how do you, does that, um, I'm sure that comes up in your ministry to people. And so what I, I'm just curious about is like, do you know i imagine you're not preaching sermons about god you know being a terrible person and killing people for 
God's will to happen. But like, I just mean, like, how has that changed your your ministry? Because I mean, that's a pretty big turnaround from where you were to where you are. Yeah. Um, I and one of the biggest things is just in, especially in counseling and one on one, is trying to help people understand that. Um, a, whenever I preach on Romans 8, I always talk about car accidents. Because um, to me, car accidents are a really easy. Car accidents are bad. Like, no one's ever going to say differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone <laughs> yeah. everyone has a connection to a car accident somewhere. So it usually works on some kind of a slight emotional level, um, hopefully not too overwhelming of one. And then just talk about, like, the promise and plan of God in spite of evil. Um and I'm very, very particular about using that phrasing that good things happen in spite of bad things and not because of bad things. Um, and I know that that is incredibly nitpicky, but I think nitpicky matters when it frames a deeper ethos and identity, um, especially like a car accident is huge. Mm-hmm. And if you lose a loved one in a car accident, that becomes an identity formation for you. And so the narrative that you have around that matters deaply. Um, and so I, tr- well, and your, and your view of God too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's identity shaping for you, but also uh, in the way you view God's identity. I mean, like it's just as serious there because I mean, that's the story you've been telling. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when I talk about God's will, I always use that kind of language. And then I, I try and make comments like God's will is clear cut in that he wants us to embody the 10 words, um, 10 commandments, sorry. It, it shouldn't be called the 10 commandments. They should be called the 10 words because it's what the community looks like so that it actually respects a God of freedom who's liberated them from slavery and oppression and empowers them to be a unique community of love and compassion. Um, like God's will for us is very clear in that respect. Now, how that plays out in complexities of our world today gets way more nuanced, but at least we have a really clear framework um, that allows us to have complicated conversations. Uh, and so like that part of it, I'll never, I'll never like step on. Like we, we have a clear guide on how we're supposed to love people and that we're supposed to love people. Um, but on the flip side of that, uh, when I try and approach this, the first thing I do is just talk about the character of God. Um, because we get into really weird mm-hmm. motifs on the character of God, uh, especially when we talk about like Romans eight um, and that whole scorpion line. It's uh, uh, in Matthew's gospel. Like it's amazing to me that people oftentimes, uh, especially in our church body, reduce God to someone who gives us goals to fail. Um Oh, yeah. And we we call it gospel reductionism or whatever, uh, but a lot of a lot of sermons are just you stink, but God forgives you. Uh, it's a good job. Uh, like you go. You... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I worked with a a pastor from your group, and that was something that came up all the time. Well, that's <laughs> a classic funeral is to do. Um, you eulogize the person, and you do the eulogy for like five minutes, and it's 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 to me always always this like futurama um i don't know if you guys ever watched futurama Mm -hmm. and futurama when fry dies the pastor stands up or the priest or whatever stands up to do his his eulogy and goes i'm going to tell you i didn't know this person you're his closest friends and family and i'm going to tell you all about it 
Um, yeah. But like I always, I always think that when pastors do eulogies as a sermon introduction, they'll do a eulogy for four or five minutes and then say, this person was great, but that doesn't matter because they were still a sinner. And they want you to know that Jesus loves them even though then. I was like, we don't, that's mm -hmm. not, I'm sad because my friend's dead. Can we talk about that? Um, yeah. And so we have this weird gospel reductionism and we read passages everywhere that like God gave us the 10 words so that we would fail. Um, he didn't yeah. actually expect us to live out the 10 words. He gave that to us to trip us up so that we would realize we need the gospel. Um, and like, he's just constantly doing that. Isaiah, the, the servant songs, like there to make Israel realize they can't be the suffering servant. Um, and then Matthew or in the gospel accounts, Jesus is just saying awful things to trip people up. Like be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, which we shouldn't translate the word perfect there because that has callbacks to Greek philosophy. And that becomes very problematic. Um, especially since perfect is this immovable state. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah. but the idea there is be complete and strive to be in a right. whole relationship with God and with neighbor, which is something we can do because it's not a fixed undone point that, that we can't reach or like Paul's epistles where he's telling us to live in these holistic ways for the sake of the community, which we always read as individualized things so that we'll be good moral citizens instead of people who actually do things that benefit others. Um, Hey, we just talked about that. We did. I say, we just got to make sure God's not out to God's not going to get us. That's really what we care. Yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, but in gospel reductionism, it's both, we got to make sure God's not out to get us. Also, God is out to get us and it's okay because we have Jesus. And it's this you get your get out of jail really time. weird thing that we do. And instead, like God's not setting this up so that we can fail. Um, it was never works righteousness. God freely created. Uh, I know Sarah Salzberg talked about this on her podcast. Um, this is baked in from the beginning of scripture. Uh, God created out of love and compassion. And it's love and compassion that is the character of God throughout. He never had us as works righteous. He never was setting us up for failure. Everything he's done has tried to make this easier for us. And it's mm. us getting in the way. <laughs> um, but what's amazing is when we get in the way, we tend to blame God for it. So that like, mm. maybe it's so we don't have to carry guilt for the sin in the world. Um, and like, we even use this to talk about homelessness. Um, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll blame the person or we'll blame God. Sometimes people use the whole way, oh, the poor you'll always have with you. Um, so like, don't <laughs> care about poor people. Uh, and look, God's very clear uh, about this. We have meaning that's given to us from scripture. Uh, or you have to tithe even if you're poor. Look at the widow's might. It's clear. Well, actually, Jesus means the poor you will always have with you. So you'll always have someone that you should care for. And the widow shouldn't have had only one coin because the people were failing to love her because there are very clear rules about how to treat widows. Um, are you sure it's not about us having money though? Yeah. I mean, it's I about mean, us having money and that's what I mean. Widows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So it's amazing yeah. how much our narratives do those two things and avoid exactly that gap between them. So talking about God and his fault and his anger and so forth and our sin and our morality and so forth. There's very little conversation in evangelicalism or even in our church body of that in-between space where you don't have to go to those extremes and say, 
hey, how about uh, how about you love each other the way you've been loved? Uh, I think hmm. somebody said that once, and it's really important for us Anybody? to focus on. He sounds like a commie. It's just really amazing how that happens, especially in light of this conversation about the will of God. And I like how you've reframed the will of God, not only for your experience, but um, in such a way where the will of God is clear in how we live with and for others, as opposed to really focusing so much on the narrative building of the will of God, which is always in the... um, the hidden God, the the God of um, the Heidelberg Disputation, which is just really, really great. As a side, uh, the Heidelberg Disputation is really interesting for me because that's where a lot of the people I read link Luther to decon- or de- destruction, it moves from there out to other places. And so, um, you know, my philosophical bone is, no, I won't say it like that because Ryan already thought of it. I got weird. <laughs> hey man, My philo- philosophy senses are tingling. Yeah, was that better? No, that's probably not better. Hey, I have yet to say hey, anything. Tie, tie, you. Look. Tying yourself to Spider-Man was far less creepy than okay. what you were going to say. <laughs> Good. Uh, so what, uh, I mean, have... Have you encountered a lot of pushback from people when you either challenge or help them, you know, because like I know in in my job, I'm a chaplain, right, with hospice, this kind of stuff comes up all the time. And as a chaplain, I can't challenge them as much as I would like to if I were their pastor, right, because it's a a different role. So I find little ways to do that. But like, when this comes up with people, uh, you know, I'm everybody's different, of course. But I mean, have you had people respond positively or are they like, nope, I'm sorry, it had to have a reason or, you know, like, what's that been like for people? Um, I always try and help them get the reason before I point out the reason they have is wrong. Um, Mm. I usually, I won't take away the meaning that you have constructed unless I see that it is an imminent threat to you. Um, or, or like to your, your person or someone else or, or relationship that you have. I never try and like, I think people have really weird beliefs about God that help get them through the day. And I want them to not have those weird beliefs, but I'm not going to take it away in a destructive way. Um, and so I would, usually I try and subtly give meaning and, and give understanding and then push for the broader thing. Um, if I ever get that explicit with people, um, yeah, I think, and this is kind of my secondary axe to grind with this. A lot of people just don't think peculiarity in language is worth it. Precision isn't something we should go for. Um, the, the use of the phrase, like, oh, that's, you're just nitpicking semantics. Like I, I am because semantics matters. Um. And so I'm not just nitpicking semantics. I'm trying to make sure that you understand how the words you use shape who you are and how you approach mm-hmm. others. Because um, the other thing is, if you have this belief, uh, usually the most danger that I see, and this this is actually where I do get really upfront with people. Um, I had 13 funerals in one year uh, at a very mm-hmm. large congregation, and it was all kinds of types of funerals and ages and reasons and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so if somebody 
the the bereaved like that person gets to have the meaning right like i'm not touching that i'm not gonna approach that but what i do get to call out is all the people who are tangential to them Mm -hmm. um and so if some family member that's not very close drops in and tries to say something that's comforting and dangerous and i know the person at least well enough to know it's going to come across that way i'll call them on it uh politely pastorally but i'll call them on it and push against the narrative um at at showings i explicitly say to the family before anyone gets there you're going to have a hundred people come through here and they all love you and they all care for you and they all desperately want to say something that comforts you because that is socially expected and sometimes what they say will hurt and you just need to ignore it because they're wrong um and so usually the time that it is most helpful is not correcting someone um that's experiencing it it's pushing on someone else forcing that experience on someone else mm-hmm. uh, and th- that mm-hmm. like i don't i don't give a rip if you're saying something that, that is hurting someone who just lost their spouse i'm gonna kick you in the teeth um because yeah. you don't mess with my parishioner who's grieving right now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah or my friend so I don't, I, I don't even think that, so I'm trying to process, I agree 100%, people don't believe precision or don't think about the precision of their language. Um, I would say, generally speaking, most people don't think about their language at all. Um, they just yeah. kind of say what, what needs to be said. And, you know, I do this too. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, but... Um, it, it is such a fickle thing when you're dealing with, especially as we've talked about here, shared narratives or shared expressions of theology that are very harmful. We we actually said one around funerals that is really common about some expression of them becoming an angel. Uh, nobody thinks about what that really means. It's just supposed to communicate, hey, I care about you. God's got them in their hand. And so what I try to say is, hey, instead of saying that, why don't you just say what you mean? Like, (laughs) God loves you, loves this person. That's good. You don't need to put any more meaning to it because the meaning you try to put to it, the language you're using, creates so many problems later on that uh, requires disentangling and you know, just brings us to a place where, so we, we've, we've gone through that of the problems with, especially the will of God. Um, I guess my question with that in agreement, um, you already mentioned some of the ways that you do that, um, by gently correcting people here and there. Is that all that it is? Is there another way that you approach handling, um, the way that people talk about God, especially around the will of God, is there more to it or is it just trying to, to seize on those moments that are presented to you in that way? Um, I think another piece of this and right, like theology, everything, uh, I both don't like systematic theology, but we have to understand theology systematically. Um, right? we have we have to see that there's interplay and that when you talk on mm-hmm. one chord it impacts six others um, the orthodox would disagree with you but i'm not an orthodox person so that's <laughs> fine um just things <laughs> things interplay uh there's systems yeah. at work um but uh 
the 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 other thing that I think I push on is the belief that the physical world is worthwhile. Uh, I I also think a lot of our comfort comes from the idea that all that matters is that Jesus loves us and we go to heaven, and so yeah. good things happening to us in the world are inconsequential in that narrative. Right. Um, so why does it matter if if my friend died? It's fine. He's in heaven. He's persevered in the faith. We're good. Uh, and I shouldn't feel sad that he's not here because he's gone home. Right. Um, so I was going to say, is it's, so often I think people, all of us use these kinds of things, our theology to not confront or not just confront, but not to feel how we feel. Right. Like, so at that line at a, at a, um, at a viewing for a funeral, what a lot of people probably need to say is, man, I really miss this person and I wish they weren't dead. And what they say instead, because they can't show emotion or they don't know how to say it or whatever. And then they say these stupid things we've already talked about. But I think in a lot of ways, we use this idea of God's will being X, Y, or Z, usually terrible things because we can't, we're afraid or unable or unable or whatever to actually feel how we feel or at least admit how we feel. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, this, this gets into like our language of going home, um, especially with death, we use the phrase home. Um, and I had one person here that I got to, I actually got to say this during the service itself because I, the parishioners talk about it this way, which I really appreciated because usually I have to be a little more coded. Um, but I, during the things that like this person's not home, if they were home, we wouldn't have missed them at Thanksgiving. Um, they're, they're in God's arms, they're resting and whatever that means. Um, but like, they're not home right now. They're a corpse and they're going into the ground today. That's bad. Um, so like, that's, that's another fun one that I like to push on. Um, yeah. So God, God cares about the physical world. And if God cares about the physical world and your physical well-being, then it's okay to be upset and disappointed and share these emotions um and say i miss this person especially to viewing right like how comforting is that instead of a coded way of like god killed your child so that they could have hang out with him and you couldn't anymore and watch them grow up and have grandkids or you feel bad and you shouldn't because god's got the kid or whatever right and it's like just just stop yeah (laughs) stop it all all you (laughs) You have to say is this is this is awful. I can't imagine how much this hurts. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's basic empathy, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's what I think that's usually what people need, but that's a lot harder to do. Um, I don't know that it should be, but I think it is for most of us. Um, yeah. But not just about death. I mean, just in general, yeah. like we just are so, like I said, incapable or scared, or we tried and people told us not to, or whatever it is, but we really, um, we really struggle with that. And I, I think it's interesting, too, because this comes up a lot with people from, well, our seminary, since I went there, too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the um, the uh, I was just wondering how you think the emotion, that whole emotion will take place into this, because like I know what comes up a lot. Um, is the distrust of emotions because you have to have right theology, for example. Um, I don't even know what my specific question is. It just, I, I was wondering 
do you think that plays into this for like did that play into this too like were you um was this because you you needed a way to understand in your mind and that helped you not feel or like does that make sense like um i don't know i'm not sure what i'm trying to ask (laughs) i'm just noticing i wonder if there's a connection i mean i can talk about affect and cognition for like another two hours uh that (laughs) generally i typically have more of a subdued affect uh, but i do a really nice job on detecting where other people are at Mm. and so i i don't know that that was such a big piece for me personally but i do see how we we get anxious about emotions and they're not to be trusted Uh, and especially like in our church body we don't i actually wrote a paper on this in which I argued like our church believes that we are Spock and we have no Kirk in mm-hmm. us. And I actually even play out this metaphor. Like if we're just Spock, I love it. we're cold and calculating and we'll let people die. Um, and we need to have logic. We need to have reason, but we also have to have Kirk who just like passionately runs in blindly. And then the two breaks the rules. Yeah. The yeah. two like meld and create an incredible team. Um, Except for like Kirk's pretty rapey, separate issue. Um, but, yeah, but that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, like the 1960s was a bad time. <laughs> Let's talk about James Bond next. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but like we we do, we just tend to deny affects, and, and like that really shows up well when we talk about confirmation process and inculcation of young people. Um, and, like we we beat things into them memory wise. Uh, and we deny emotions and we do deny emotional responses. So you're, you're absolutely right about all that. Um, well, it kind of, it makes sense that it, it uh, I'm not saying it, it caused this, but it just, the kind of God. So if you're depending mostly on your cognition for how God works and you, not you, I mean, a person needs everything to make sense. Well, then it makes, it makes sense then that you're, that someone would view God as working in that playing a chess game kind of yeah. perspective and i did have because to have that then kind everything of god. makes sense i i did have yeah. that kind of god for a long time and i'm glad i don't anymore yeah. uh, i don't think i would be a part of the church if i hadn't grown out of that hmm. i think i would have as i got smarter and started to connect the dots um and got like i got into philosophy and other stuff and started to see how larger arguments play out and how language matters I think I would have connected the dots and I'd have left the church if my understanding of God hadn't gotten robust. Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 so. <laughs> I think that's why you have a podcast. <laughs> yes. I, I, I uh, resonate with what you're saying, even if it was different things that got me there. I, yeah. I, I often wonder how, and this is going to sound judgmental. Maybe I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm going to, cause whatever. It's your podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I just I wonder how people who still hold to that kind of thing, like how do they not see God that way? And I maybe I don't even mean it judgmentally. I just I don't know, and like I don't know what other conclusion you can make. Um, at least for me, I couldn't make a different one. If God was really that way, then God is a monster, you know. But and I always think again, as soon as you start picking at one, you're talking about six issues altogether. Uh, I, I, right. for these people, like God is everything has been orchestrated according to his plan. Um, they have a very simplified view of scripture, uh, that like it's been handed down like water through the prophet, uh, which I always use that expression. People usually don't catch that. I'm 
subtly commenting on Muslim beliefs that they've imported <laughs> into Christianity. Um, not so subtle if you know it. Uh, like we have these really oversimplified views of scripture that God had to do that. And so if God's done this for scripture, he's done this for our lives and he's done this for the church. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's all set. Um, and usually, here's the other way that I combat all this, Nate, and uh, go way back to a question you asked. Uh, so, so sandwich choices is the other way that I approach this, and it's always sandwiches. Um, when you, if you tease out God's will in a way that most people apply it on major events, when does it stop? When do you, and, and this is when I'm going more logical and direct at people, when does it stop mattering? Does God's will stop being at play? How can you know that when you went to Subway, you got the uh, right sandwich? Um, you mean God didn't tell me what pair of underwear to wear this morning? Exactly. Um, I just always, I always <laughs> use sandwiches because then you have like 10 choices when you're staying. Right. Right? Um, yeah. and, and so like, we don't get an, and here's, here's why I really like this example is because it goes, it plays on two different themes. Like which sandwich is the right sandwich to get? Um, does God care which sandwich you get at Subway? And the answer is both no and yes. God doesn't care which sandwich you choose, but he does care that you're at Subway and taking... God doesn't eat Subway. Exactly. <laughs> but, that's, but not even tongue-in-cheek, Ten Commandments-wise, applying that to a broader understanding of how the earth works and how like, society is developed and how oppression works in subtle ways. Like, should Subway exist if they have like meats that aren't ethically sourced and American meat isn't ethically sourced. It's just the way that we've built up our entire infrastructure around meat and we eat too much of it. And so like God both doesn't care which sandwich you get at Subway. And he's also given us the 10 words and the rest of scripture that help us understand which sandwich we should or shouldn't get broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. which shirts we should or shouldn't buy. God cares and has made his will known he just also we don't know where he's up to work um i'm gonna steal that one (laughs) so it's it's what it's it's why i actually really appreciate taking a step back like i don't know what god is up to but i also know what god is up to right um because i know how the church should be at work let's talk about racism here god doesn't desire that people would be oppressed yeah so like God deeply cares and we can see God at work through the actions of, you know, people living according to his will. And like, that's really cool to me. Um, and that God's plan happens in spite of horrific things that are at work in this world. Um, and even like going back to the clothes thing, I read, I actually read someone who pointed out, like, if you realize that your clothing is sourced in a way that's dangerous and, and hurting people in like say Bangladesh, um, don't just stop buying clothing from Bangladesh because that will crush that people. Right. Start lobbying your CEOs and the people who are setting the prices so that they'll pay Bangladeshians appropriately and then keep buying the clothing. Because um, right? our world's gotten really complicated. We don't get easy answers mm-hmm. anymore. Um, right. Our world has gotten really complicated. That was the silly way of framing that our world has always been really complicated <laughs> yeah but we have new dimensions that weren't always there i mean yeah the world was always complicated but we did not used to have amazon or whatever yeah that's just the one i hate the most and um not just that we have amazon but it's baked into our economy and into our way of life so much that not using them isn't really right yeah i did a whole episode about that <laughs> 
and that you can hurt people by abandoning these things mm-hmm. is also really noteworthy. Um, I'll, I'll plug for Nomad Land here. Watch watch Nomad Land if you haven't yet. It's on my list. Yeah, it'll <laughs> make sense as to why I'm plugging it after talking about Amazon within the first ten minutes. I promise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing your story, Matt, I think what I hear as one of the threads is a deep need to have a more robust theology, to have a more uh, full and complex understanding of who God is and who we are in relationship to him and to each other. And I just think that that's something that needs to be drawn out explicitly by the uh, throughout our conversation um, so far, because it's just been so great to see how not only have you highlighted where um, the lack of that has caused some problems with God's will and with your doubts and so forth, but how on the other side of that experience, you are filling it out for yourself and for other people so that they don't experience the same thing, and so that you are living into the 10 words, um, the ethical considerations that we have for other people, and more. And I just, I think that's just such a beautiful way to think about it, Um, especially as somebody who, as Ryan knows, and many who listen to this know, think through things before feeling through things, and knowing the logic of how a... um, a theological perspective can grow and maybe the pastoral heart when it comes to seeing some of these complicated issues rise up in our own experience and the experience of others is yes, to do the negative thing. Um, and, uh, well, negative in the philosophical sense, like speak against it, but also speak into it and how it can grow. And I really, I got to say, every single time that came up, I really appreciated that because it shows um, so much of who you are and who you've become. And I just, thanks. That's been great. It's always nice to hear, not just nice, it's always great to hear um, nuance, (laughs) you know, because like it may may sound overly simplified, but so much of what was lacking in my theology growing up was any place for nuance in anything. I mean, what is this this stuff that we've been talking about? Is that to the nth degree, right? Like we can't have nuance to the point of we need God to kill children um, because we can't deal with anything else other than that absolute make sense of everything kind of thing. And so it's just, I don't know. I think it, it just is healthy to hear <laughs> um, for me, but I just think it's what we need in general. Yeah. This, this is why I, um, I, I really wish people. What one of my hardships as a pastor is like adult Bible studies. I can't get people to read books in between Sundays, um, mm-hmm. and I, I really wish there was a way to get people to dig into this stuff. Um, but that's that would be the easiest way to really approach all these issues is to just get people to start reading books on their own and talking about it. Um, but that's it's tough. So. Um, yeah, I love it when lay members like talking about this stuff and, and digging into it with me. Um, and I mean, I've got, you know, Sarah Salzberg is one of my lay members and she can run circles around me on a lot of these issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's she, smart is, lady. she is smart. Um, very smart. So I, I love, I love Sarah Salzberg. She's wonderful to have here. Um, in my, in my congregation. Um, 
but yeah, uh, it's, it's been a really, it was a really long journey, uh, and a really tough one at times, but, uh, it's been so freeing to get to the point that I'm at now. And when tragedy, when trauma, when difficulties happen, I'm not looking for some intricate meaning that God's up to and what I need to do next. I just, I make the best decision I can with the information and with conversations with trusted friends and family and we move on. Um, yeah. And if it turns out that I make a decision that, that didn't play out as well as another one would have, that's fine. I made a decision as best I could. Um, and like, I, I think the other part of this, if I had never gone into pastoral ministry and I'd gone into com computers and networking and stuff, that would have been fine too. Um, mm -hmm. Those were both right decisions. Now I can make a lot of wrong decisions along the way and I could do either of those for the wrong reasons. Uh, not that there are any pastors who have done that for the wrong reason. No, not at all. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's just it's been great to to grow into that depth and to be able to bless. Hopefully, other people feel blessed <laughs> that conversation. <laughs> so. Yeah, like I think because I've you know I think all three of us have probably had to really rethink how God's will works and doesn't work and. I don't have it figured out, but I think that's just the point is we don't know. But I, I think what I've been able to kind of settle on or become feel more comfortable with is that God's will works in that God gets what God wants or, you know, like God's will takes place and I don't have the ability to thwart God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you said, like good thing, God makes good of things is kind of how I'd look at that verse. Even if they're not good things, good can still be made from them by God, um, which is very different than saying God did bad things so that good could happen. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't, it doesn't answer every question and it's not perfect, but it, for me, it's really helped to just be like, it's kind of about trusting God to work rather than knowing exactly how God works all the time. Unless, you know, you guys might be a whole lot smarter than me, but um, well, I think it's, it's a more beautiful expression of who God is, who who can take something so terrible and create wonderful things out of it. Not because he used the terrible thing to make that happen, but because life in, ha, life it involves those terrible things. And how. This is like what, why I really loved what you said, Matt. Like, how simplistic and boring is it to think that God is orchestrating events in such a way for all of his will to happen hmm. and that what we see is what we get as a result of that? I think it's much more interesting and it's much more compassionate and fascinating for God to, to react to our life and sin in this world with the grace and the power that he has so that we can come out of it. Like Matt, you said it like this experience has been hard and long and boy, Ryan and I resonate with that. Our experience mm. in this journey of being on the frontier has been long and hard, but in a strange way we can say because of God's working, we wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. I mean, would we trade certain things? Yeah, certainly. There are certain people. You trade certain people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, we we certainly, I'm sure Matt would say, I don't even have to caveat, he probably wouldn't want to leave, have his, see, I did it again. 
you wouldn't mm-hmm. want to lose your friend. That, that's obvious, right? right? Um, yet, on the other side of things, what God has done um, is much more beautiful than to say, hey, he killed my friend so I would be a pastor. It's more as a result of this terrible thing that happens, he's taking care of my friend at this point and into the future. He's also taking care of me to help me grapple with that well and to come to a place where I'm not okay with it because you're never okay with the loss of somebody, but you're in a place where, hey, I've got this robust understanding that God does care for me and cares for my friend in just a radically new and wonderful way that then urges me, as we've kind of highlighted, urges me to go out and do that for other people, the ethical reality that we have um, from the 10 words. And for me, that's just much more interesting and beautiful than anything that uh, a theology that's pre-constructed can offer. Yeah. And it's so much more personal too, right? We're not a piece on a board. We're a person. And God, through I think even divine acts of empathy uh, is with us in all of these things working for our good. Um, you know, he's not, God's not up there moving night to, you know, B3 or whatever. God's, God's there with Ryan saying, um, you know, Ryan, all of this thing is happening and has happened. And so we're going to work good from it because we want, we, because God wants what's <laughs> best for me, you know, yeah. um, so that, that idea. He's not giving you scorpions. No, no. It's almost like we should take Jesus seriously when he says things. You know, I I know that we struggle with that, <laughs> but we could maybe think that maybe Jesus means and meant what he said. I, I don't know. Just that's thought. That's the great irony of all this. It's like it's it's the people who say that scripture is clear and unambiguous, <laughs> and then immediately are like, "Eh, we didn't mean that." He's doing some great. Weird so let's love our enemies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. No. Thank you. Allow me to nuance that for you now. All right. Great. So I like to do this at the end. um, And usually I've been doing this with teachers, but, you know, pastors, they have a teaching element to this. Um, Just so people get to know you a little bit differently. um, What's what's one of your hobby horses? What's one of the things that if if people were high schoolers in your church, church and they wanted to derail you so that they didn't actually have to talk about the subject at hand, what would that be? What's something that you really get into where you see glazed eyes and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I wish you would really understand how cool this is. Everything. Uh, <laughs> I, uh. My kids are doomed. Um, so like early on in our kids' lives, when they, whenever they ask a question, I I would answer it and I would answer it to the fullest of like what I thought was appropriate at the time. And I don't mean like appropriate in terms of what I thought they could cope with. I mean, <laughs> like if they ask how babies are made, I'm not going to say something that they're going to repeat and get in trouble. Um, but I will answer as long as they, they keep paying attention and listening to it. Um, and so like our kids ask why the sky is blue. And I actually started to talk about light refraction with my three. <laughs> um, and we've actually gotten to the point now where they've started asking some questions we can't answer. Um, I mentioned that the sun's going to explode and blow up the earth one day, um, which it's not. It's going to implode and then blow up the earth, whatever. Yeah, um, come on, get it right, Dad. Well, so I didn't know that. So we called up somebody who has a PhD, who's getting a PhD in physics and working on plasma research, specifically regarding the sun. And so she talked to my daughter for 20 minutes about the ways the sun can die and what our sun will do and how long that will take. 
Uh, (laughs) And my daughter listened to her for 20 minutes. Um, (laughs) So what's my hobby horse? If you want to get off on a tangent, basically anything, Nate, anything is a hobby (laughs) horse for me. Um, My favorite things to do right now, I've gotten uh, more into woodworking. And so I could bore you to death about a miter joint um, versus a rabbit joint. Um, I am a stereotype of a male, which haunts me. Um, Nick Offerman or uh, what's his face? Um, yeah, I don't boy. do I don't do sports ball. Um, yeah. By the way, Nick Offerman, amazing woodworker, really solid. Yeah, um, yeah he's awesome. I was thinking of his character. What, fuck, what's his character's name? What's his name? Uh, Ron, Ron Swanson. Swanson. So I'm a caricature of Ron Swanson when it comes to breakfast food. I am like, yeah. <laughs> I, but, I, but I Nick love that he has made that chair in Parks and Rec. Like Nick oh, really actually made the chair that Ron <laughs> Swanson made. Um, That's awesome. Uh, and like my, my biggest question, Nick Offerman has a huge, huge uh, place in Los Angeles. I assume County. Um, he has like a huge closet dedicated to like ten by twelve wood slabs. Uh, uh, like who has space like that in Los Angeles? Um, well, when so, you got a bajillion very dollars. specific. <laughs> yeah, it helps. Ryan's eyes are glazing over right now because I'm talking about woodworking. I can tell it's happening. Hey, well, that's that's what so, that's what Nate asked about. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, so no, I'd like genuinely. I have, I, I just like learning silly stuff. And if you, if a kid is interested in something, and shows a deep passion for it, I will chase that rabbit down the hole as long as I can keep the kid going. Um, cause I want the rabbits dead. <laughs> yeah. Until I've killed the rabbit myself, but, but genuinely like it's watership down in there. Um, but I think like kids appreciate that when you do that kind of stuff, cause it shows that, Oh, the pastor cares about this and this stuff that's mm-hmm. not theological, um, or that I think is tangentially theological matters to a faith leader. Um, and so I will yeah. chase every rabbit down until everyone loses interest and I'm happy. (laughs) Well, and I remember when I was a kid old enough to, to understand, but still pretty young, I used to hate when people would treat, like talk to me like a kid, you know? Um, And so like, I, you know, even if it got a little boring, sometimes I always preferred, didn't happen that often, but when someone would actually, I don't have have to treat me like an adult, but treat me like I'm a thinking being. That was always nice. Like Mr. Rogers treat you like Mr. Rogers would. Um, there you which go. is the greatest Mr. Rogers education. Do? Um, so yeah, so our, our kids, we've actually, we've already read, uh, all of the Lord of the Rings to our now six year old. Um, wow. and wow. we're almost through all of Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events, which is just nothing but tragedy. And oh. it's, it's existentialism being played out it's on how we make meaning. <laughs> Have you read it? I've never read them. I've I always saw the old movie a long time ago. Don't, I haven't no, read no. them. Read read the actual Lemony Snicket books. Um, there's like one moment where one of the characters says like we did our best, and the other one responds with yeah, but it didn't matter. Our loved one died. Yeah. Um, and they just like explicitly use platitudes, and then explicitly say that was like totally useless right now. Why mm. are we hanging on that? It's great. It's it's like the perfect book for me. Um, mm. <laughs> Uh, so sunny. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's that's probably a good place to stop for today. So thanks, Matt, for coming on and, and talking with us and telling your story. And um, it's always fascinating to me to hear how our stories work in the way that they do. 
And um, so I hope that as you listened to his story, that maybe it challenged you in some ways and uh, not just your theology, although that too, but I hope it challenged you to really be present with people wherever they're at all the time, Um, which is one of those things that's easy to say and harder to do. But uh, I think maybe that's why we are all consistently challenged about it because we need the reminder. But I'm not preaching today, so I'm going to stop there. And I'm just going to say thank you for listening to the podcast. And uh, if you have anything you'd like to tell us, uh, send us an email at frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com. If you could give us five stars on some podcast app, that'd be great too. And um, yeah, I don't think there's anything else that we need to say news-wise. We're still working on the other part of our project, so stay tuned on that. And uh, yeah, I'll just end the way I like to and say it's okay. And it's going to be okay. And I promise God will take care of us. 